thank you very much for joining me for the for the Fine Watchers podcast. Introducing uh, racing legend uh, John Bauer. Thank you very much for coming on. No, no, no problem, mate. We we have a mutual friend, so uh, you know he. I suppose was the reason I became interested in watches. I think most people that are interested in cars are interested in watches or mechanical watches. Um, but our mutual friend Chris, he kind of introduced me to, I guess, uh, it's just I'm an enthusiast, not really a collector. So, you know, you got to have a lot more money than me to be a collector. I think, you know what, I think it's interesting that you say that because on the on the pod we've talked about enthusiasts versus collectors and the definitions quite a bit. And I think that, if anything, I think I, I, I'd rather be called an enthusiast than a collector because really collector is, collector's about amassing, like, ownership, whereas enthusiasm's about, you know, knowing about it, appreciating it for what it is, you know, and you can be an enthusiast with no watches, really. So, of course, you can. Yeah, absolutely, you know. no question about that. The uh, you know how this, how my enthusiasm came about was was uh, Chris introduced me to uh, a guy from uh, Watches of Switzerland, which is obviously still operating as a business in quite a few capital cities. He's a lovely bloke and um, he sponsored me. He was the Australian distributor then for Tagware, so he sponsored me. He sponsored Dick Johnson and I, to be honest, um, through, uh, well, through me and then I asked him to include Dick in the deal. So, So that's where the enthusiasm started and then, it was in that era that Ed and Senna was sponsored by Tag Heuer and they used to use Ed and Senna in the their advertising and it was, uh, yeah, so. They were good. From that, I think I've got a, a, a Senna tag here somewhere. It's definitely yeah. somewhere here, yeah. I, I loved that era with those sort of L-shaped links. They yeah, they were so called cool. the S, SL something. Yeah, yeah, I did too. I did too. Um, and then one of my other friends uh, in Canberra is a, a watch lover. So, you know, we we talk about watches sometimes. I've, I've owned a few various watches and uh, I've got a bit of a love for Rolex watches. But, uh, you know, the, the prices uh, in the second-hand market are very... <laughs> Very interesting. Oh, it's bananas. it's bananas. If you've yeah. got a few Rolexes a few years back, you'd be pretty happy. Like it's, they've proven to be a very good investment, although it's, that doesn't happen all the time with watches. And they are coming back a little bit now, but they're still still worth a, a, a pretty penny. Um, so tell us a little bit about uh, going you know, going back to, to uh, sort of the, the, the traditional start of the, the podcast. What a uh, wrist check. Were you wearing something nice today? Well, I've just come back from the gym, so I haven't got a watch on, mate. <laughs> neither do I. Neither do I. <laughs> the worst, worst wrist check on the podcast history. Yeah, yes, it is. <laughs> I was both I'm wearing. <laughs> That's funny. I've been wearing a, uh, a a Bell and Ross. It's called a Phantom. 
Oh, gorgeous. Which, yeah, nice. Yeah. They're, they're, uh, it, I, I think it's hilarious because you can't see it. It's, you can't read the time. Yeah. <laughs> you can never tell what time it is because everything is black. Yeah. So I've been wearing that for the last few weeks. Uh, yeah, so I, I bought it uh, with a very dear friend of mine who's no longer with us, Jason Richards, who was a, yeah. a supercar, V8 supercar driver. Yeah. And uh, he lived across the road from me, and he he passed away from a very rare form of cancer twelve years ago yesterday. Yeah. So uh, I, I I was in the city with him, you know, probably fourteen or fifteen years ago, and uh, he was buying a a watch for his his wife, and I ended up buying this this phantom. Yeah. <laughs> Which so when I want to tell the time, I, I pull my phone out. <laughs> yeah, they're a funny watch. Those I, I had one come through my you know sort of my store and wow, like it was just cannot read anything. And even the loom on it, like you'd think at night time you could read it, but they made the, they made the loom so like deep, deep, purpley black that you can't can't read it anyway. What are you when speaking? Actually, I was. I have to ask this question. It's off topic with watches. Speaking of of the Richards name, you were on the podium for the for the pack of assholes incident. incident. Uh, yes. Uh, tell us about that. <laughs> that is that is such a, a legendary moment in Australian motorsport history. You know. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you were competing and and you know all that sort of stuff. Like it must have been a very very unique situation. Yeah, but it was strange. It's a different Richards family, obviously, but they're both uh, both Kiwi families. Um, yeah, the, the the it was the '92 Bathurst. It was the rain red flag incident with the Nissan that Jim Richards was driving, and um, we uh, Dick Johnson and I basically we thought we'd won the race, but. We should have read the rules better, yeah. <laughs> because we'll talk. About, we'll talk play. about Lewis and, and Max in a second. But go on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we they stopped the race, and then of course they go back one lap, and during that one lap, uh, Jim Richards, who, who's a, you know a, a friend as well, I'm a great admirer of him as a driver and a yeah. and a bloke. He. Uh, he crossed the line, so they go back a lap. So he was in the lead. So they won the race, even though the car was wrecked at the top of the hill, top of Conrod Street. Yeah. So we we go, we go to the podium, and uh, yeah, it was it was just a, a very strange moment, to be honest. And having watched it a few times since, it, it, they, the officials had no choice. I mean, they had to stop the race. The, the track was blocked. Yeah. So if they if the crash hadn't happened, uh, yes, we would have won the race because we stopped or Dick stopped and put wet tyres on, which would have navigated the track easily. But uh, Jimmy didn't stop and aquaplaned coming up the mountain through uh, just after the cutting and tore the front wheel off it. So then when he got to Forest Elbow, he was, you know, anyway. He couldn't. That's, yeah. What if, what if is, is one of those things. I mean, I, I still have people ask me about it and, uh, you know, I mean, it is what it is. 
But just even but in it, terms of, even in terms of the, I mean, you know, we I, I mentioned, you know, Max Verstappen and and, and Lewis Hamilton in, in in what is a similar situation where it's an interpretation of the rules and. You know, from from appearances, one person won or should have, and you know whatever. I'm just thinking in terms of, I mean, that stuff happens in motorsport all the time with rules. But I'm just thinking about the the podium moment. I mean, I, I happen to have the. I don't know if you've seen the the guy who sells the pack of assholes bitter down at. at uh, 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 but I mean, uh, it was an opportunity. Such a such a, a a charged moment, and I would have thought that it, it would have almost been scary to be on that podium, right? The crowd's ready to kill people or whatever. Yeah, well, the crowd were <laughs> the crowd were on our side, so, so <laughs> that was all right for you. <laughs> yeah. we, were, we were we were the good guys in their eyes, anyway. But I mean, if you dig underneath it all a bit, yeah. it doesn't matter whether it's Bathurst or a Grand Prix or a Le Mans or whatever. There is. In the in the race control, there is a race director, and he has other people around him that are advisors. And the the decision is taken by them collectively. Ultimately, sits with the race director, yeah. and whether he's right or wrong, he has to make the call. And in, in the Bathurst case, it was the right call. It was Tim Schenken back then, and yeah. and it was the right call. Um, with the Max Verstappen thing, I I happen to agree with that as well. I. I I think it was the right call. Yeah, but um, as it's as, interesting you say that because most people most people are up in arms about that. But to me, it's okay to the letter of the law. Maybe there are a couple of other cars that needed to unlap or whatever, but they weren't obstructed by those cars. Like those cars would have been well out of the way, and it would have been a technical win for Lewis because they had to finish under the safety car because there weren't enough laps to restart or whatever. And as it was, it was. Given the season, and they were one point apart, and they two titans in both excellent cars, and da da da. Like you can't, I, there's there's never been a more exciting finish to a season of motorsport ever, surely. Like no, no, but I mean, the, once again, it was the the the, the fresh tyres on Max's car that allowed him to comfortably pass. So yeah. you know, Mercedes team could have done the same thing, but they didn't. So at the end of the day, you know, the, it, Max won, and, and and so he should have won. But the Mercedes group uh, kicked up a fair amount of fuss, and in, in the end, it cost uh, Michael Massey's his job, I think. You know, which is uh, yeah, oh, which definitely was, absolutely, if not just from a political point of view, they had to do something to because half the fans around the world were livid. You know, so let alone let alone. Mercedes. Well, it's a bit like in our case, go back to 1992, Dick uh, on the microphone on the on the podium, uh, you know, he whipped the crowd into a frenzy and, and, and Lewis and Toto whipped the world into a frenzy after that. So, you know, yeah, I mean, when you've been around motor racing as long as I have, you, you tend to learn, and it, and it is a learned behaviour, you learn to roll the punches, otherwise you drive yourself insane. Yeah. So what, what was it? I, you know, I always ask people for the for the pod, what got you into watches, but what got you into racing? What was it that sort of made you, because everybody, you know, a lot of boys go go karting and go, oh, that's cool and da-da-da, but not everybody goes, right, this is, I'm going to do this forever. 
do you think it's just talent that people, people get told, look, you've got a bit of talent, you should pursue it, or is it, there must be something that drives people to do it? Uh, well, I mean, in my case, I grew up in a family that was involved in cars and motorsports. So my dad uh, prepared other people's cars at, at a state level in Tasmania, where I grew up. Yeah. And we always had a, a racing car of some description in the, in our garage, which was just a suburban garage, normal garage. Uh, he was a mechanic, and I so I grew up around racing cars, and I spent weekends at racetracks, hill climbs, sprints, things like that. So it was sort of inevitable, possibly, that, that I would start racing now. Starting racing when you're 15 or 16 doesn't mean you're going to be racing when you're 100, which is what I feel like sometimes. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I, the, the resilience and the determination to keep going is something that, you know, I, I, you'd have to get a, a team of psychologists and psychiatrists yeah. to work that way. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't know. But I do know that I love it. Uh, I love the sport. I love most of the people in it. Yeah. Not everybody, yeah. uh, but mostly. Uh, and I love the competing and I love the driving. You know, the driving part of of, of uh, motorsport is ultimately what you start doing and that's what you love, you know, and, I, and I, I love it, I still love it. And I'm going to do it again next year. So, you know, when I stop will be two things. It will be whether I can still do it. Yeah like physically and mentally, or, or whether I can still get a drive in something or afford a drive in something. So so it's not over yet. The journey's not over yet. Yeah. My, not my watch journey, although the motorsport, like my, uh, if, if you if you sort of said what what would you, what sort of watch would you have if you if you had an open check, I'd have a, a I, I don't know how, how to pronounce it. Is it Langenstein? Hang on, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Hang on, yeah, yeah. Well, I Beautiful. had one of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, a magnificent watch, yeah, absolutely. So uh, the and I haven't got one, and the motorsport is, you know, very much dependent on funding. You know, you need funding, yeah. and you unless you're very wealthy, you you need people to help you. Which which, fortunately for for fifty odd years, I've I've been able to do it. So I'm very grateful. I'm very grateful. Yeah. So so when I, I asked Tim when I spoke to Tim, um, who's previously been on the the pod, mm. I asked him about uh, the whole timing thing in motorsport, but making that sort of connection between between watch making and and. And, and motorsport and you know there's been sort of uh innovations in 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 watchmaking specifically influenced by motorsport with with development of chronographs and and you know stopwatch function and all that sort of stuff and and i think tim's a, a, a started in motorsport a little bit before you where there would have been <laughs> slightly older technology involved initially and all that sort of stuff um, although in, in sort of Formula One they were starting with the, you know, embedded timing loops and all sorts of stuff even when, when Tim was driving. Um, but the, my question was, 
when you when you listen to, to to drivers talk, particularly the F1 guys and you know the V8 guys, like anyone at a sort of a, at, at, a, at an elite level, but racing drivers talk about, oh, I think there's a tenth there, I think there's a tenth there, and and usually that is remarkably accurate. And so yeah. what? So what I get, what I, and Tim gave me a sort of broad answer that you can sort of tell your speed through a corner because of revs or whatever. But do you think that racing drivers use that to describe I can go a bit faster in that section? Or do you think that racing drivers can actually tell time? They know you know from the time past where you should be on the track and all that sort of stuff. Uh, I think it's a it's a subconscious thing. I think if you've done a, a fair amount of it, you, you your brain gets tuned to it, and and if you if you you know quite often you you might do a lap and you go well I've dumped a couple of tenths over there or something because something has happened that's not quite right of my understeer oversteer you might hit a curb too hard or something you know I I think it's it's part of being brain trained to be a racing driver and I think there's I, I certainly nowadays. I have a lot of brain training experience. You know, I, I can I can generally get in a car within and within a few laps, understand what it's all about, and drive it to a reasonable level. So that's brain training. That's not natural ability. It's just you know, obviously, you have to have natural ability to drive it in the first place. Sure, but it's very complex. Uh, but I'm talking a, more from I'm talking more from a time point of view. Like people can get, I mean, obviously you need to get in a car and and feel its, you know, understeer versus oversteer characteristics and how much body roll it's got, or you know, steering angle, steering ratio speeds, and that kind of stuff for sure. But I'm talking more about the time bit because you know, as we as we we spoke briefly last week, I was sort of saying it. It, it seems that racing drivers live. Bit like Jedi, like you can see twenty seconds down the road. You know what I mean? Like, like racing drivers can see f- faster or into the future a little bit. And and so, do you think that it's do you think it's a time thing or it's just a gut feel thing and it's sort of a oh, it's a gut feel it's a general generalization rather than an accurate measure of time. Yeah, I think it's a generalisation. I think it's a, just a, and I mean, I can only speak for myself. I can't see inside other drivers' heads, uh, but I think you know anybody that does it for a, quite a long time and at a reasonable level has that trait. You know, it, it's. Uh, I don't think it's uh, anything unusual. It's just, and and to get back to racing drivers as a as a sport, it's a very non-understood thing you know any any other sport that i can think of anyway you can go have have coaches uh, go to the institute of sport have a, a path to follow with motorsport there's no real path i mean of course there's categories that are seen as a progression yeah but not all, not it's it's not set in concrete so you know i i, I I'd love to uh, be a young academic and do a PhD on the psyche of a racing driver, but that's that time's passed, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
think I've got the brain power for it anyway. I, I, I've been really lucky. It's funny you say that because I, I've been really lucky through my my um, Tim Sheridan's son is a very, very good friend of mine. So I've known, known Tim and sort of been in moderately in his orbit for a long time. And that included when, you know, for example, when the A1 series sort of yep. still exists, which I, I, I miss. Like I actually thought that was really entertaining. I, right. That was bloody awesome. Fantastic. Well, um, but it's, it requires someone to fund it, and that's where it all went astray eventually. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But but I got to meet quite a few really, really, you know, big, big, big name drivers, and it strikes me that all drivers have, you know, at the top level that you know, there's there's sort of this something, there's something missing in the in the in the range of feelings. Around fear and and sort of the ability to remain rational under pressure, which is why so many drivers are also good business people. That that you know that it have you also have to have this characteristic of of kind of you know the fear bit is not and and also most racing drivers don't seem particularly uh, particularly sort of sentimental. Like I met um, Mark Weber at one thing. And said, "Oh, yeah. I used to have a Weimaraner, and you know that aren't they good dogs? I've got a couple." And he goes, "Oh, yeah, no, she died a while back." And I was like, "Oh, man, that's terrible." And he was kind of like, "Yeah," you know, really casually. Oh, yeah, knocks you around a bit, doesn't it? You know, like it was, it was. When I've lost dogs, I've been devastated for years. Yeah. You know, and he was like, "Oh, yeah, she was all right." Like, <laughs> it's. Do you think? That's uh, yeah. true? Do you think that's one of the things that gives racing drivers the ability to do what they do? Once again, you know, it's generalisation, but, I mean, of yes, it, it, you've got to be uh, uh, a little bit removed from – it's not that you can't be upset about things, but you do need I, – I, for instance, once again, I can only talk about myself, but uh, as a person, as a human being, I can be quite an emotional character. I, I'm touched by emotion, but – as a racing driver, I'm not touched by emotion at all. I, I, I even it, when people do bad things to you, which can happen, and, and, and recently happened to, when I raced in Adelaide only a few weeks ago, uh, one of the other guys hunted me off. So, yeah. I mean, it's you, you, you need to remain calm, otherwise, you get out of the car and start swinging punches. And that's happened before. Yeah, I mean, people, people have attacked other drivers and, and that's a really good way to get yourself banned. Yeah. So I, I think over time you learn behavioural patterns and, a, and, a, and yeah. in motor I'm very unemotional but as a person I can be emotional. So once again it's, you know, it's very complex, way more complex than it is, say, swinging a tennis racket or something, you know. Yeah. So going back to the, going back to the watches, so you, you said you had a, you had a deal with TAG. Uh, yeah. So, what what uh, did did you get some special watches out of that, or did you sort of you developed a lot? Yeah, I did. SEL, I think they were called those ones with the yeah, and then they then they became the link, yeah, so, which is series. modified book. So your center would be a link watch. No, I think I it's the last of the SEL. So it's the one with still with the three dials, okay. and it has the two little digital windows as well. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. I know. Yeah. I know. Yeah. So um, I did get uh, several 
watches. Um, one of them was a was a six thousand series, and it was gold, solid gold. Oh well, yeah. Uh, so uh, it was way too blingy for me. I'm pretty. No, I like to think I'm normal, but maybe understated is a better word. But yeah. uh, so when I drove, joined Brad Jones Racing. Brad had a deal with, which was uh, Louder Air at the time it was, which was yeah. Nicky Louder's airline, which had been taken over by Austrian Air or something, I think. Yeah. Anyway, long and the short of it, I swapped, I swapped my watch to Brad for two business class return tickets to Austria. Wow, yeah. So, so was, so was uh, because the watch wasn't, it didn't really suit me anyway. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and he's a, Brad's a bit more of a blinger than me, so. Yeah. Very mutually advantageous, let's say. Uh, beautiful watch, but I'm not a gold watch lover, so yeah. there you go. And tell us about some of the other watches you've come across either through you know, the sponsorship deals or, or ones that you've sort of acquired yourself that you don't mind discussing there with me? Uh, well, I've, uh, my, my, I've got a, a, a Rolex Submariner, but, you know, I mean, Submariners, everybody's got a Submariner, haven't they, really? Almost. They are. They're, they're common, but people, I don't know, and that's, that's one of the things that's blown me away about the jump in value of them is that, they're hardly a rare watch. Like, no, they're not. I mean, they're a bloody good watch. Don't you? I mean, I've, I've been accused before of Rolex bashing on here, and I, I don't bash the brand or the product at all. I just think the market is ridiculous around Rolex. And it's a, it's a bit like uh, a bit like Ferrari. They've done this incredibly wonderful job of of marketing and creating a uh, you know an image for themselves and. Um, and I guess a Submariner is probably the most recognisable watch in the world, really, isn't it? It's yeah. you know you look and you can and and it's copied by many in in some way. You know, there's yeah. a lot of yeah. other brands that do the so. And so anyway, it's, it's perfect watch design, really. It's amazing watch. Yeah, I uh, I had a um, I had a Daytona that I I sold it recently. Nice. Um, there was that was another one that 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 has gone absolutely bananas, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, they have. I mean, I, it's I sold it to a friend who who always wanted one, and he's and you you know you can't buy one. So yeah, uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> lovely. Yeah, well, I mean, it's uh, you know as I've mentioned earlier in the thing that. Uh, Financing motorsport, unless you're a maybe a, even a Formula One driver, some of them I'm sure bring sponsorship. So uh, yes, you got to pay the bills, and that was a method of helping pay the bills. Yeah. And really, I didn't wear it much anyway. So yeah, and you mentioned Bell and Ross. So you tag Royer through a deal, Rolex, because you know uh, lots of people have Rolex because they're, they're good. And you mentioned Bell and Ross. Are there any other sort of smaller brands, sort of independent brands that you that you have your eye on, uh, have pieces from? Uh, that you- I've, had, 
Honestly, I've got a, a, a Monaco. Yeah. A black. No, it's a black case. Yeah. Which I, I actually bought. Lord or whatever that. That's. I don't know what it is. Yeah. I, 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 they were going um, with my one of my mates. Uh, as I went to uh, a guy called Joe Collegia. I went to America with him several times and raced with him. Raced his cars. So. I was going out of Tullamarine and I bought it, you know, it's probably 10 years ago, yeah. which I is an iconic tag, Hoya yeah. wristwatch, isn't it? You know, it's, it's, oh, a, it's a, yeah, yeah. So, um, but I did, I bought it just because of that, you know, and now there's about 80,000 different versions of it. <laughs> yeah, they, they are, they've gone bananas with the, with the Monaco's and I think, uh, it's a pity, like, tags seem to have moved away from that classic collection now. I mean, the Carrera is kind of a a, a sort of a, a catch-all name that they apply to so many different watches within their their range, and it's applied to so many different so- styles, like completely different style watches. Um, yeah, yeah. But I think that that, I mean, I love vintage Hoyas, you know, I think, there's so many super, super cool watches. And some of the ones that you don't see a lot, like the, you know, the Kentucky and the, you know, there are all these kind of cool, cool ones that that are, are a little bit more rare, the Montreals and, you know, all those that. The Silverman, the, uh, even the Monza. I, I, I actually would, would love, love a. Yeah. yeah. And the, what's the, there's another one that's. Resurfaced in the last few years, um, that was associated with Joe Sifford, who was around in oh, the Ortavia, the Ortavia, Ortavia, that's the one, yeah, yeah. I've often yeah. thought about trying, those, but but you know, the I, old I guess ones like, are amazing, yeah, they're amazing, they're, they're beautiful, yeah, yeah. I love you know, that the place too. to get those is Japan, there's plenty of those over there, and they're yeah, pretty reasonably well priced, and they're. And you know, Japanese people tend to look after stuff, you know. So, yeah, yeah, really good condition old watches over there. Um, my uh, my son, my youngest son, was in Tokyo for four or five years doing his his uh, PhD, and I visited him once, and I bought a a, um, a, a moon watch there. Yeah. They're they're very they watch stores at. Fascinating, aren't they? Oh, amazing. Like general terms. Oh, amazing. Look, I, I did a um, – I, earlier in this season of the of the pod, I, I spent about a month in Japan uh, and partially buying watches, partially doing some other stuff. Uh, but, yeah, Japan's watch market is, I would argue, one of the highest quality in the world, if not the best in the world. I mean, it's, you know, certainly for accessible stuff, you know, I mean, you can go to you can go to, you know, so the Middle East and see some very very expensive watches. And, yes, know, but but Japan is you know if you if you're the sort of one to five thousand dollar marker, there's so much value there. Bell and Ross that you mentioned. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Zins S I double N watches. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're they're quite popular over there. That kind of stuff that is that actually represents very high quality without the without necessarily the the price tag is. Uh, 
is popular in Japan, and as I said, they you know they really look after it, which is which is great. So, yeah. yeah so, uh, yeah, I, I I'm aware of lots of different. I mean, I'm it's like I'm aware of lots of different cars. It doesn't mean I own them. Yeah, <laughs> same with watches. You know, I've had a, a hundred, two hundred cars in my life, but it, but I haven't got very few now. Yeah. So I'm not a. We go back to that. I'm an enthusiast, and the same with watches. You know, I'd I'd uh, I wander down Collins Street and look in the windows, and <laughs> and that'll do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I've I've got a, you know, I've still got a, a love of them, uh, but I I doubt very much whether I'll be buying any more watches. You know, I'm a, although I might make an exception with the Autavia. Oh, it's just that, that that era of Formula One, which was basically when Tim Schenken was in it, yeah. was was very exciting. It was the 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 time aerodynamics really got up and going, and tyres got bigger and fatter, and you know it was a it was an exciting time. So, and the racing was incredibly dangerous. You know the cars were built out of aluminium and rivets and a bit of glue and you know, like but the circuits if you went off the circuits you hit something fairly solid so that that was a, as a, a kid where my interest in formula one came from so yeah so well, I, think, I think that time was so fascinating generally right like it was well, not just for motorsport but for watches as well uh, yes, yes. For, you know, interior design, you look at houses from the late 60s, early 70s, and there's all these beautiful colours and whatever, everything's sort of very and, – and watch design from that period is certainly my favourite sort of era where you, you see these, you know, beautiful dials with sub-dials sub, uh, with colours on them and all sorts of stuff. It was super, super cool. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree, absolutely. So what – your – are you a watch dealer? Can I ask a question? Trader, yeah. I, I mean, I try and call myself a trader rather than a dealer. I mean, I'm a dealer. Um, I Basically, it, it started uh, – I started Fine Watches many, many years ago with a friend, and what it started as was like sort of – just before the GFC, the exchange rate with Japan was ridiculous and like 115 yen to the dollar – and their prices uh, on on watches, the Japan, Japanese watch market's really interesting, and it, and it continues to today. This was back in two thousand six. Um, in Japan, watches have a serial number, which might very often, like cars, tell you when the watch was made. So they change part of the serial to reflect the year or whatever. And yeah. the Japanese market doesn't typically doesn't want to buy a watch that's that's not this year and brand new. So you could go into a Rolex store and look at it, be looking at a Submariner, which essentially hasn't changed for 60 years or whatever. With I mean, okay, before the pundits get onto me and say there's been a million variants, but you know what I'm saying. And, <laughs> and, and but they won't buy like yet last year's watch even if it's okay. exactly the same as this one. So there's quite a big sort of clearance market over there, and we would parallel import watches drop-shipped um, 
until the GFC just destroyed it overnight because the arbitrage on the exchange disappeared. So then um, sort of during COVID and a little bit before that, I uh, had started buying lots of watches and, and sort of realised, but I, I always retained a business name and everything. And then uh, my my collection started to get to the point where it was, you know, maybe this should be a one-in-one-out arrangement now and yeah. uh, just restarted it. And it's it's been really good. I, I try and, you know, just keep my dealing to bringing quality, really high-quality pieces in I mean, everybody sort of says that, but I don't. I don't go out. I don't chase Rolex. No, no. Deals, flip deals and all that sort of stuff, which a lot of a lot of watch dealers do, because that's the yeah. quickest and easiest way to make money out of it. I'm fortunate that this is not how I I sort of have to make money. This is really an enthusiasm thing for me, and you know, I move the watches to kind of, you know, feed. So, what's your business? Finewatches.com.au. I'll have to have a list. Please. Yeah, please. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, look at watch sites. I mean, so I I wouldn't say my addiction is, is gone. It's just tempered. <laughs> that's that's the nature of addictions, right, is that they sort of come and go. I, I, I <laughs> usually usually ask people, you know, sort of in, on the pod, you know, what's what's your favourite watch you've had over the years? Have you got sort of any regrets of some you've let go? And you see, you just mentioned you've had lots and lots of cars. What? Yeah. Uh, tell us about your favourite. Have you got a favourite that sort of you either still have or you, sh- you should never have sold sort of thing? Oh, there's lots I should never have sold. Um, uh, I'm a, I've am owned lots of different cars because I'm a, a car enthusiast, have been since I was a child, but... Uh, I've owned 37 Porsches in my life. Wow. And uh, I, I always make jokes out of it. I sold every single one of them before the price went up. And, I mean, a lot of <laughs> yeah. a lot of classic Porsches are worth a lot of money nowadays. Yeah, oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, but I, 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 I actually love Porsches. I've got a, a little uh, normally aspirated Boxster S, which I use now as a, and it's just an everything to everybody. You know, it's a beautiful little yeah. car. It's fast enough if you want to go fast, which you can't anymore. It's comfortable. It's you could let your nana drive it. Yeah. So that you know, that's my favourite car. I've had, I've owned Ferraris and Lamborghinis and BMWs and Mercedes and you name it. I've had it. Yeah. But Boxster, most of them. Boxster S is the one you reckon. It is for me, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's probably half the price of the same model nine eleven on the used market, yeah. And it's better car, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, the well, only thing is theoretically even on the edge, like a Boxster should be a better car, right? Like given everything oh, else equal, because it's, it's not better. It is better, no question, it's better, uh, but. You know, 911 is where it's like Rolex watches and Ferraris and, you know, they've got this wonderful sort of mythical image about them. Not that I think there's anything wrong with Rolex watches. I love Rolex watches. But, um, you know, it's it's just what you make of it. I'm sure there are uh, Porsche pundits, as you call 
people uh, that'll make a comment and say he doesn't know what he's talking about, but I actually do. <laughs> <laughs> in this case, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting because I think that it's I, I think that's a common thing where a lot of times it's and and in cars I've spent a lot of time in cars because I used to work in cars myself. Yeah. And I've yeah. always I've never driven competitively, but I've always liked, you know, sport driving. So, you know, had yeah, a rapid mode. I've I've had a go-kart and, you know, I've I've I, you know, driving John Cooper works mini daily and you know, whatever. And I think it's it's interesting because I think that most people the you know, the Rolex Porsche thing is a really interesting example from a you know from a sort of a branding psychology point of view. I think both of them are unarguably in some ways the best they are perfect products like the 911 okay you can sort of debate the engine over the back thing but not being necessary but for in in a way it's it's as close to perfect as you can get um it looks the same as the first one like you know the design is so perfectly is so perfect and all that like uh, and it's the same with it with the with the submarine. But I find that I'm really it's really cynical. Like I think that if the people who just get into cars, you know, worship Porsche as being the best thing possible, and people who just get into Rolex worship that as being the best thing possible. And what they're worshiping is not actually what's good about that product. For someone who knows, for a driving or for from a from horological, you know, mechanical watchmaking point of view, they they're simply worshiping the brand, and it takes somebody who knows how to steer to, to get the best out of a nine eleven. I mean, they, they, I I had a, a my I'm sure you got way better Porsche stories than mine, but this one's this one's quite funny. I think I used to work at the Porsche Center um, with Michael Barker and. And Austin King and all those guys a long time ago, and when they were still in the under the silos over there. Um, and one night I got to take home uh an 80s whale tail cabriolet. And someone said to me, I mean, I remember the first time I took a 911 out that one guy that working there said, you know, I've seen you drive, Benny. I know you think you can drive, but with this car then the engines over the back remember that you can't drive and that car still had that car still had traction control and da 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 that was a modern 911 and then then took this whale tail 80s thing and i lived in sort of malvern at the time and i was coming to to um you know the vicav property there and i was coming onto that sort of downward slope bit of hotham street next to the big como mansion and I came, so you're t- turning right downhill, sort of patchy rain, and I, and I came out and I was joining traffic. I was I genuinely was not being a dickhead at all, like thought I was pulling gently out into traffic onto a sort of a rain-slicked road. And the back of this thing just kept going round completely <laughs> unexpectedly at all, and I ended up on the other side of the road facing up the hill and just kept going back into the street as if I meant it. Like, but, I mean, I, that that just showed me, like, and that was a time when I'd already been dri- driving go-karts and all that. And, like, they were a pig of a car in some ways. Like, it's... Well, 
cricket gear. They, they're very style. Oh, we used to do, and I used to do sort of driver training and things like that. And I always say to people that are driving 911s, particularly the older ones, uh, you can't do anything with it when the back is up in the air. Yeah. You know, so if you're braking and turning, yeah. you've got a problem. Yeah. If you release the brake and you get to ride height, normal height, yeah, you can do it with it. Yeah. So it's 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 style centric really, and and I've only ever done I think two or three races in in nine elevens. One was an old one, early seventies, and one was a mid nineties, and they're they're still much the same. And I, I don't know about these new cup cars and things; they look. Like they're quite good, but I think they're still style centric because of that thing that's hanging out the back. I, yeah. I reckon you know, Porsche have spent sixty years proving to the world that they put the engine in the right place when everyone knows they didn't. They absolutely didn't. Yeah, yeah. So having having driven, you know, so many incredible, and and I I get for sure that even a you know sort of GT two RS is still not a race car. Like if it's got carpet. And, Whatever, it's just not a racing car at all, right? Um, what What do you think, having driven basically everything? Because you, you, your your career has been almost exclusively tin tops, right? Like you haven't really done. Something. Oh no, I raced open wheelers in my early life. I I didn't race. I didn't start tin tops until the mid eighties. You know, right. really, because and I only did it not because I loved it. I kind of learned to love it. Um, yeah. Uh, in Australia, the, the only way to have a proper, say, career, for want of a better term, is yeah. is, is in a touring car. So yeah, right, that's, right. I sought out a drive and I ended up with a drive and I ended up being in it for a very long time. Yeah. But I guess, I guess uh, the essence being that, you know, in your, in your sort of sort of, Senior career in your, in your sort of elite career, it's largely been tin tops, right? And yeah, and so you've driven basically everything, everything with a roof. And and I think tin top. The point being that tin tops more closely uh, relate to to road cars in so far as you know, in GT you're driving a Gallardo or a 430 or a, or a 911 of some description or whatever, like it's a car that people yeah. think that they're looking at that is the same as a road car, right, although yeah. they're not. Um, what do you think, uh, having driven all of those, is is your favourite car of, of all time? Is it is it actually a boxer? Like is it or is it, it you know? So do you mean a race car or a, yeah, a road well, car? Well, no, I mean, I guess... Well, both, I guess. So part A, part B. So favourite race car and then favourite by extension, you know, road car version of um, a location special or whatever, you know. It's always the, the later the model, the better the car because it's just evolution. Um, the last lot of GT racing, GT3 racing I did was in a 488 Ferrari GT3, which was a fantastic car, very, very, very competent car uh it's it's probably arguably out of date now but um very very good car and and i've enjoyed porsches more as road cars than 
I've had a few, two or three Ferraris, and I know people that have got them, so I've driven them quite a lot. Um, I think people buy Ferraris for the more for the the badge, the the brand, the the going down to the cars and coffee on Sunday than they do because there's nowhere to drive them fast unless you do track days. Yeah, you can't drive. That's you know you can't drive them fast on the road anymore. You just can't. Yeah. First of all, it's uh, probably arguably dangerous. Yeah. Because that's the fast that not many people are capable of driving them properly. Yeah. And the uh, particularly Victoria, but New South Wales is not much better. And I imagine the other states are following suit. They have a camera on every second tree, you know, or post. So yes. as, as the cars get better, the laws get tighter. Yeah. And so and the manufacturers keep making quicker cars. So why is that? I do not know, but yeah, it's it's a fact, isn't it? So well, it's interesting to me. Like I, I think that I mean, my my John Cooper. Now that it's worked, I, I took it to a race tuner and got it subtly tuned. Like just a stage one, didn't do anything physical to it or whatever. But after the tuning, that car is. And, and I, I say this only for illustrating the point, is that car is as quick 0 to 100 as the first edition Lamborghini Countach was. Yeah, um, yeah. So, and, and that's not a particular, again, I don't know where these bubbles come from. They started coming up. One of them does, like, one of them does streamers and all this stuff. Um, the, But the point being that, 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 there are so many cars now that in the 70s would have been called supercars. Yeah, they uh, were. That are entry level, you know, hot hatches or whatever. Um, yes. And that's the problem is that, you know, it, throughout my, my driving history, and I've been lucky to get to drive a lot of things because of where I've worked. I worked at Aston Martin and at Porsche and all sorts of places. I mean, some of the funnest cars, in, you know, I, I still love the Mark 1 MX5, and that thing's got bloody 90 kilowatts or something. You know? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I agree. We, uh, Thank you for my, saying that. my family were uh, Mazda BMW dealers in Devonport, which is only a little little yeah. town in Tas. And no, I mean, I worked, off. I worked there from the time I left school, really. Um, and the MX5, when it came out, the, the first edition was groundbreaking. Yeah, groundbreaking. Yeah. And I've got a, I've got a, a, I think they call them NC. The model, but it's a MX5 SE, which was a factory turbo that oh, they made. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They made for about one year. Yeah. And every time I drive it, which is very rarely, I think to myself, why would you spend three or four hundred thousand dollars on a on a soft top Porsche or whatever yeah. when you can drive this thing? It's just it's a perfect little car. It's got yeah. a little. Uh, a, a turbo engine which is very understressed. It's got yeah. a six-speed gearbox. It's got power steering, air conditioning. It's all analog. Yeah, it's just a, a wonderful the gearbox, car. The gearbox is just the wrist for like a, a magnificent car, like a rifle bolt. It's just <laughs> yeah. I don't know it's what it would be worth because I, I'm going to sell it shortly, but. Um, Get, have, let, I, before you do, um, please call me about that one because I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about another MX5 because they're just such a good car. Like, yeah, 
Well, this is rare. Like uh, we'd stopped being a dealer by that stage. It was it's it's two thousand and four. Yeah. And it's done seventy two thousand kilometres, and it's got twelve services filled in in the book. Yeah. So I I bought it for my partner basically. Yeah. But she drive it much because it's a manual. So you know, yeah. it's, but it's, you know, it's it's fabulous. It's just I, I just remember that I, we. I, I got I got the sixty seventh car ever made of the oh, four. Really? Yeah, like the the very very first one, and uh, I just remember for years for for about nearly twenty years the the reference point in motoring journalism in in magazines was the MX five. So I knew Boxster had come out, and they would say whilst not as nimble or da 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 as an MX five, it is. This. Yeah, yeah. It was just yeah. the definition of, of handling and rider and dri- driver and car being at, at one yes. and that sort of stuff. And they're just, they're just sensational little thing. It's amazing. Yeah, absolutely agree. And so this this car, like of mine, is it's like a, a classic and a rare classic without the money. So, you know, I, I honestly don't know how much it's worth, but, but it's not worth a lot of money. I know that. And, yeah. and yet... When you drive it, you go, wow, you know, there's, you just can't fault it. And I like analogue, you know. I Recently uh, I was in Sydney and I hired a car. It was an Audi A3. Uh, might, no, it might have been an S3, an S3. Uh, and I couldn't work with all the gadgets in it. I mean, it's just ridiculous. <laughs> you need to do a course. Before you drive it, Audi's so this, tend to be tech heavy, don't they? Like, this, uh, like I had it for three days, and I still didn't know how to work anything. <laughs> I think I think my favorite, I think my favorite to answer my own question from before, the favorite car that I've ever driven because I didn't own it was when I worked at the Porsche Center. We had a a B four uh, Audi RS four, so oh, yeah. the first RS four, the one that was only made as a station wagon uh, and it had a Cosworth 2.7-litre bi-turbo in it, like there was actually... At least it was, wasn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. And they and they, were, and they were real Cosworth engines, you know, like they were ones that had been done at the Cosworth factory, not bought a sticker or something. And I remember driving that thing around Melbourne and people like, you know, Someone would be at the lights in a Porsche or something, and you see ya, like, and they come at the next lights. You know, what the fuck have you done to that? And it's like, no, nah, <laughs> this is how they made it, you know. And uh, you could put shopping in the back. You put the dog in the back or whatever, and it was, yeah, and it was a beautiful yeah. car inside. You know, it was a, they were a magnificent thing. I, I like that. They're, I think they're quite collectible nowadays, but um, you know, most of them are like. If if you muck with a turbo car, yeah, too much. I mean, stage one, as you talk about your mini, is fine. But if you muck with it too much, yeah. it's it ruins it. Yeah. So most of those RS four wagons or Avant or whatever they called them, is uh, they've all been mucked with. There wasn't many of them anyway, but yeah, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. We could talk about our world forever, mate. But I've got work to do. We could indeed. So the, the traditional finishing point of 
the Fine Watchers podcast. You you did mention it before, um, your Grail watch, uh, the A. Langer and Song. Uh, so I'll have to close with another question. Grail car, like money, no object. You could have any car in your collection at all. What would it be? Uh, a Porsche Turbo S. Nice. Yeah, Just, I mean, it's an animal or like a new uh, one or an old one? All things to all people, though. You can, yeah. they're so docile and tractable and easy. You could let your nana drive it. Yeah. And if you want to, it goes, you know, like a spite out of a cannon. So, it just you know just a just a complete lovely motor car. Like you can, I know you can buy things that are way rarer and faster, but not for me. Lovely. I've matured. I think I've matured. <laughs> Fantastic, John Bauer. Thank you so much for joining me for the Flying Watchers podcast. It's been a pleasure having you on. Uh, thank you very much. I've done plenty of podcasts, but never one about watches. It's so good on you.